This is 4L with Ryan O'Neill and Rebecca DeCoster. All right, Rebecca, before we get started today, thank you and a shout out to attorney John Anderson from Giamarco Mullins, who graciously agreed to lend his spectacular vocal talents to do our uh, podcast introduction. Isn't his voice great? His voice was absolutely perfect for what we were looking for, because we did not want to have that weird, like, DJ voice. What do you mean, a weird DJ voice? Like the guy, you know, the guy who's, you know, this is WKRQ in New York, and this is our top 40. Like that, like, it's the same guy that at night goes and does the strip club voice. It is the the same guy. His name is Ron. This is Ronnie Ron coming to you from Bazookies and now welcoming to the main stage. This is Chastity. <laughs> but that I that's what I've heard it sounds like down there. So um We didn't want that. No. And when Because it would be undignified. Correct. And full disclosure, since you and I both work in the family division, he is not a family law attorney. You were a colleague of his in your previous life. Yeah, he was a, a colleague of mine when I was in private practice. And we never even really worked together that I recall because his practice is so utterly divergent from anything that I was doing. I don't think he even does any litigation of any kind. Um, but I remembered that voice. Yeah, no, it, it was perfect. Yeah. So thank you, John. And, thank uh, you, John. Yeah, if you're looking for voiceover work or legal work, <laughs> call John Anderson over at Giamarco. That's right. Great job. All right. What do you want to talk about today, Ryan? You want to talk about trains? Do you want to talk about the loco motion? Okay. Is that a motion joke? (laughs) So you and I have talked about this previously that we could do, uh, you know, a hundred part series on motion practice. (laughs) And um, we're not going to do that, but we are going to talk today about motion drafting tips to prevent your case from going off the rails. And I think these are things that you and I have seen, again, from both sides of the things that we dealt with when we were attorneys in private practice and things that we see now uh, as hearing officers, you know, managing a weekly docket of, of motions. Right. And again, I mean, it's a total perspective shift from drafting them to being the one who has to read everything that's been drafted. Um, So I think that our perspective is a little bit different than someone who is drafting them. And I think we, because we have a different perspective, we can offer some tips that will help your motion drafting be more effective. Agree? Yes. Okay. Yes. So So, here's my first tip. All right. Before you even start drafting, and along with most required, well, most counties, I think, have a requirement that you seek concurrence from the other party for whatever it is that you're asking the court to order, right? So you're supposed to call the other side, you're supposed to email the other side, get in touch with them, try to get in touch with them, and request concurrence in the relief that you're seeking. And I will tell you, and I don't know if you feel any differently, but post-pandemic, so I guess the period of the last year, I feel like that 
not just legal responsibility, you know, per the, the LAOs and the court rules, but honestly, just the professional courtesy to another attorney has been completely thrown out the window. That you'll get lawyers that will come in for motion call and they will, you know, you'll say to them, hey, you know, did you guys have a chance to talk about this yet? Nope. Nope. <laughs> and I will say this too. This, I think, is one of the unintended side effects of the virtual motion call is that so many attorneys relied on that sort of hour before their case was going to be called to do that in-building sit-down. Well, and I'm going to disagree with you that it's worse since the pandemic. I mean, maybe it's worse, but it's not ever been fantastic. No, you're right. <clears throat> I just feel like more so now that everything is being done remotely and via e-file, that there's no, and I shouldn't say no, there are some that still do it. It's just, it's a really low rate of, of cases that are coming in where you can tell and the attorneys are saying, yeah, we did talk about this beforehand. We tried to work something out. It just wasn't going to happen. Right. I agree. And you also used an acronym that people might not be familiar with. like. You said LAO, which I think is a local administrative rule. Is that what right. you were? Yes. <laughs> You're so fancy. <laughs> so the bottom line is, for the love of God, seek concurrence before yes. you file your motion. And, and, and you and I have talked about this. You know, look, there are cases where, you know, filing that motion is going to set a series of events off, right? There, there's going to be some dominoes that are going to be fall, that are going to fall once that motion is filed, right? And there are some times where you strategically or for other reasons, it may not always be the best case to give somebody a two week lead up that a motion is gonna be coming down the pipe. No, I agree. We did talk about that because I do, like I can't sit here and tell you that when I was in private practice, I didn't do the, I've drafted my motion, I'm going to call you as I'm sending a runner out the door and seek your concurrence. Right. But there are times where, you know, the request for relief and I'm, and, and there's a myriad of examples, but you know, I don't think a, I don't think a change to a midweek parenting time visit or a, you know, um, tweak to the childcare component in a child support order is something that requires cloak of secrecy. <laughs> I, I think right. you can be there doesn't pretty, need to be a lot of cloak and dagger about something like that. Right. You can be pretty forthcoming that, hey, there's been a change here. We think this should happen. Is your client in agreement? And, right. and those discussions can happen beforehand. And, you know, I, I don't know. It doesn't I, seem that hard. It's not that hard. And, and, I think there are some times where, you know, depending upon the nature of the case, there's a temptation of saying, hey, I can file this motion and, you know, that's going to bring me, you know, more billables than it would if I just picked up the phone call right? or, or picked up the phone and made the call. I just don't think that that's great advocacy, right? I think, you know, if billing is your, is your concern, and I get it is, look, I want everyone to get paid. I want everyone to have a great life. <laughs> You know, but at the same time, or you could do a podcast as a side hustle because we are rolling in it right now. Yeah. Um, totally. <laughs> this is a great spot to also mention we're looking for advertisers. So, you know, <laughs> contact, 
contact us uh, on Facebook or Instagram. Um, but but I, I, I think there are times where that temptation is real and there are folks who will, will sort of hit that button to say, yeah, you know what, I'm gonna file the motion, get this in front of the, the court, and then you know we'll, we'll, we'll talk when we get to the building, which again, that dynamic has now been removed. Um, because you know, the first time a lot of folks are talking is when you know you open up the Zoom hearing room and there's there's opposing counsel. Well, I'll also tell you what to me is sort of a symptom that what's going on is I'm going to file my motion. I'm going to shoot first and ask questions later. So I'm going to file my motion and then we're going to talk about it. Is when I see a motion get filed and then it gets repressipied and repressipied and renoticed and repressipied and renoticed and repressipied for multiple weeks and I know they're talking trying to come up with a solution but please stop making me read that same motion four or five times and like <sighs> right that's all um so right so next um after you've sought concurrence and it's been denied or have they haven't responded to you um, then you got to sit down and write a motion. But I think you also need to think about before you get real invested in drafting, figure out what it is that you're asking for. What is it that you want? Right? Right. Because sometimes what you are asking for is, is, is actually counter to the problem that you are bringing to the court's attention that sometimes the solutions that are being proposed are not necessarily the, the best ones to address the problem. And, and I think the other, the other, I guess, thing that we've seen from time to time will be motions that are really just sort of, what was that bit in Seinfeld, right? The airing of the grievances were festivus. Yes, festivus. They're festivus motions. Right. Just airing of grievances. <laughs> I'm just going to spend the 20-page maximum just absolutely trashing the other person and airing all of the dirty laundry of this case. But I'm not really going to, at the end of it, you know, tie this package up with a nice bow of this is what's going to solve the problem, right? Because sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes the motion is the vehicle to go about and getting at the other party, which without any real sense of I'm doing this to accomplish anything other than to embarrass or to frustrate or to anger or to, you know, again, make myself feel better by bringing these issues out into a public forum. Which I think would also be an ethical violation. Like if you are fomenting litigation for no other purpose other than to embarrass, harass, or otherwise just make life difficult for the other party, you've got a bigger problem than whether or not your motion irritates me. Right. Yeah, you you've violated some problem. court rules along the way and you, you know, probably should worry about that. Right. Like maybe review the lawyer's oath before you send on that one. You had a great story though, that you've told me before about, you know, where the relief, <laughs> where the relief doesn't necessarily match up with the problems that are being addressed in the motions. Well, yeah, it was sort of from another direction because it was relief that was granted by the court that wasn't requested and didn't address the problem um, by a judge who's no longer on the bench. So I had filed a motion to change legal custody. I had two parents who were joint legal custodians. Um, 
the opposing party had done a couple things that violated that joint legal custody provision in their judgment. Um, she had first of all put the child in mental health therapy. Um, child had gone to multiple sessions, never first of all got concurrence from the other party to do that, um, and never even put him in the loop that it was going on. Um, and then the second thing she did was the child who had been raised um, in an Eastern non-Christian religion, she had baptized as Catholic without ever notifying the other party, either before or after it happened. Um, I believe he found out when um, someone from the church congratulated him. So I filed a motion to change legal custody to sole legal custody, and the relief that was granted by the court was that the parties were to communicate only through counsel for a period of six months. What, what was that? What now? <laughs> Huh? So what are didn't, we doing? Really, didn't really address the problem. Um, and even if it was a communication problem between the parties and not a weird power and control battle, if it was just like, you guys can't communicate, the way to solve that is not by preventing them from communicating and using lawyers to be able to communicate as your proxies. Like it just didn't make any sense at all. No. It resolved nothing. No. And 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 like you said, it's it's a it's coming to it from a different angle, but look, there are motions that get filed where that type of relief is what's requested, and you're sitting there thinking, I don't think this is gonna actually solve the problem that you've raised. So I had one the other day, actually, same sort of thing, where it was a motion to change the parenting time order, improper folks, right? Um, mom wanted to have a set schedule because they had a prosecutor drafted order that gave reasonable parenting time, right? Mom wanted a schedule because dad wasn't exercising his parenting time. So mom wanted a schedule so that dad would be forced to exercise his parenting time. Um, that's not gonna work. Like no. it's just not gonna work. Like no. if he's already not exercising parenting time when there's no schedule, giving him, and she wanted 50-50, which was, the craziest thing to me. Like she wanted a week on week off schedule to force him to take a week on week off schedule. And I, I can't litigate him into being a parent. I don't right. know the really, the relief that you're requesting doesn't even make any sense. No, no. So I think that's a great, a great point. Make sure that what you are asking the court to do actually addresses the underlying issue. Yeah. And I, th I think you need to make sure that you're laying out facts that actually support the relief that you're requesting. So if you're requesting a change in custody, the, you might want to go through all the elements that you would have to prove to get a change of custody and make sure that you've got facts that back you up and that you're actually writing them down. Right. Right. I mean, we've discussed before, like, there's no more sandbagging because you might not get oral argument to argue a bunch of stuff you forgot to put in your motion. Right. So make sure it's all there. And I think to that point, I think there is probably now an even more enhanced emphasis on, you know, doing your due diligence as an attorney to make sure that, you know, the things that your client is telling you, you know, have some veracity. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're laying it all out in that written in that written form, you you know, you want to make sure that you know, like you said, if you're going through every single best interest factor and you're doing a a quick blurb about how you know the facts that you're going to allege in your particular motion, you know, support you know, a finding that a change is appropriate and meets the threshold and is in a child's best interest, you want to make sure that what you're saying is true. Absolutely. Which I know sounds like a total no-brainer, but <laughs> again, like, you got to sort of sit in our shoes for a few weeks and, and see how many times things get filed that are just verifiably untrue the second that they're put in the motion. Like, right. I'm going to write something and the other party's showing up and they're bringing receipts. And... <laughs> You know, that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. Well, and I think a, a corollary to that too is when your presentation of the facts is this happened. Um, so the only thing that explains it is that the other parent is terrible. Well, wait a minute. Um, I'm not required to buy into your version of reality. If it's just as possible that the fact that that happened means something totally innocuous and you've got nothing to back you up that it was the other parent, you, you might want to consider that that might be how it's interpreted before you file your motion and say, you have to draw this conclusion because of this event or this fact. And I see this as a reoccurring theme constantly when folks are using the issue of a child's grades to sort of prove the other, you know, uh, you know, Parent A has primary parenting time and the child is struggling in school. Therefore, you must conclude that giving me primary parenting time is going to improve the child's situation that I am the better parent. Like, I don't think I need to connect those dots. And I frankly don't think logically you've given me anything that would allow me to do that. No, I mean, it, there's a difference between like, you know, on mom's time, the school assignments don't get turned in, but on dad's time they do. That's different, right. right? But if you are just showing me your report card and saying mom's got most of the time and the kids got all C's and D's, so switch it to me because I'm awesome. That's not helpful to me. What might be helpful is if you thought three steps ahead and were like, hey, maybe it's a different kind of issue and maybe we want to talk about like does this kid have a learning disability that's never been diagnosed do we need to think about maybe other causes before we upend this kid's life and completely change custody around right um All right. <laughs> it's i'm just going to do it sporadically throughout because I never knew I would actually have a need for a train whistle, but here we are. Well, there are. was an uncomfortable lull there, so I think it was a good time. Right. Yeah, we um, want to keep it moving, keep it fresh, keep people entertained. Right. So here's my other hot tip, particularly for family law practitioners, um, is that if you didn't appear at the referee hearing and you are filing an objection to a referee recommendation based on what your client told you happened at the hearing, it would be a really, really good idea to maybe get the tape or the transcript of the referee hearing and review it before you put a bunch of stuff in a motion saying that certain things happened or didn't happen or were said or not said without ever having reviewed the underlying record. Because you might end up looking super foolish 
And if someone's feeling particularly salty on a particular day, you might get sanctioned. <laughs> Just saying. And that is a another one of those reoccurring things where, you know, well, let's keep it to the family law component of this, right? There is sometimes a belief, sometimes by attorneys, but frequently by litigants who don't know that, you know, the, the FOC hearing is sort of the dress rehearsal, that oh. nothing that happens at the FOC level is going to count. And I get a total redo when I get in front of the judge. So I'll give my, you know, shot of spin at, at taking the case on my own. And if things don't go my way, then I'll contact an attorney. Right? We've all seen that. I've had those, you know, when I was in private, I had those folks come to me and say, yeah, I did an FOC hearing. Uh, I thought it would go better. It didn't. And now I need you to do the judge hearing and we'll just redo this. And, and so your first thought is, as that attorney is, well, we might not be redoing all of it because you know, the rules for de novo vary and, and judges don't have to give you a brand new hearing. Um, but number two, when you are that attorney getting that phone call from a client, you really are doing everyone, including your client, a disservice by not ordering a copy of the, of the transcript or of the report, hearing, hearing and listening to, I'm like stumbling over my words here. <laughs> Like it's five o'clock. I've not been drinking. Um, but you, you better get a copy of that recording and find out what exactly happened because <laughs> clients' versions and, and views of what took place at a hearing are often not necessarily grounded in reality all the time. And right. so well, they and I, don't, I don't think you can rely on a layperson who went to the hearing without an attorney to correctly account and interpret what happened at that hearing, because they're not a lawyer. There may have been things said that make complete sense to a lawyer or a person with a background like that, that don't make sense to your client who's an IT guy or a nurse or even a surgeon. So, you know, getting that underlying record is super important. Right. And that's the, I mean, it sort of leads into the next thing, which is you have to be willing to ask your client the tough questions before you file your motion. Like if something doesn't seem right to you, I mean, you should be reviewing every single fact with a skeptical eye, as far as I'm concerned, because it's not incumbent upon the court to not question things that seem not correct or that could be interpreted in a different way, right? And if you have an opposing party who's relatively bright or they hire an attorney who knows what they're doing, they're going to respond and it's going to be a totally different story. So I think you have to ask the tough questions, be willing to ask your client for backup documentation to the extent it exists. Um, Ask hard questions about whether or not something they're relaying to you could be interpreted in a different way. Right. And, and it, uh, look, there, there are times where you're sitting in that conference room or, or now doing it on Zoom, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, you, you sort of are getting a feeling that, like, things might not be as the client has described. And, again, I think it's you're doing yourself and your client a disservice if you just sort of take what's being said at face value without doing any sort of due diligence to ascertain 
the facts. And again, on this one, you know, on the on the example we gave, it's it's really sort of an easy one, right? It's ordering a copy of an FOC hearing and, and taking a look at what took place there, right? That's the easy one. The harder ones are the ones where somebody's coming at you where there's never been a hearing, right? And that's not limited to family law. That's any type of of litigation where you have to go to court and you have to take a position and 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 make arguments based upon the facts that your client gave you. But when you do that, you just really need to make sure that the facts your client gave you are accurate, that they're grounded in reality. Well, let me give you a different example that just occurs to me that's easy, right? right. Which is client says, oh my gosh, um, the other party is texting me and emailing me and saying horrible things or saying they're going to do horrible things or you know, told, did tell me this or didn't tell me this for like, what's the first thing you do, Ryan, if someone says they're texting me or they didn't text me, quit looking at Mark, March Madness and listen to Yeah, me. this was a terrible day to film the podcast. Uh, and as much as I'm bummed that my back bracket is busted, I am not bummed that Ohio State lost. Um, Get on track, Ryan. Well, let me see a copy of those text messages. Let me see a copy of those text messages. And by the way, did you delete any of them? Did you delete any of them? Because if you're giving me a chat transcript or a chain of text messages and you're telling me that's the whole incomplete record and it's not, and attached to the response to my motion is the complete record where what you said wasn't disclosed is disclosed, or you say you didn't say something and there it is in black and white, I got a problem. Right. It, a common theme that I would talk about in private practice with clients and say to them is I'd say, give me everything, even if you think it makes you look bad. Because frankly, the things that make you look bad are probably the most important things so that I know how to manage them, right? Because the worst possible outcome for you is us being in court, me making an argument on your behalf, and then having evidence, like you said, of the fact that you deleted some, some pretty nefarious portions of your text conversation. And now I'm standing in court with my pants around my ankle, and I'm, I'm shackled. I'm stuck. I am absolutely in the worst possible position we could be in. And I would say that. Don't make me the guy that's stuck in court with my pants around my ankles, because that's, that's not something, frankly, anybody wants to see. But it's not a position that I want to be in as an attorney, right? Because I can't effectively represent you, but sometimes even worse is now my credibility in front of this judge has now been sullied. Well, and like we talked about before, it, when people start talking, it's not just that judge. Right. It's everybody else who watched you go down in flames. Yeah, the things that happen in courtroom 1A don't stay in courtroom 1A. They're talked about in courtroom 1B, 1C, 2A, 2B, all the way up to the top floor. <laughs> it gets around. It's judges talking to judges. It's clerks talking to clerks. It's clerks talking to judges. It's clerks talking to attorneys. It's attorneys talking to attorneys, right? It, this is a small, and I don't care if you're practicing in Oakland County, Michigan, or you're out in New York City or San Francisco, the legal community is a tight-knit community in wherever you're practicing, and word gets around. So don't be the guy who's being talked about because his client handed him you know, uh, half deleted text messages, and then you got stuck in court, you know, 
with your pants around your ankles. Right. Well, and by the way, also, you might want to anticipate what the court might care about knowing, right? right. So if you're filing a child support motion and you say, you know, we need to review child support and have it lowered because my client um, lost their job and their salary's lower, so we need to review child support. Well, first of all, obviously I'm gonna wanna see pay records, but also you might wanna think about the fact that I'm gonna ask about other income um, I understand your salary's lower, but you got a signing bonus of $50,000, which for the year puts you over what your previous salary would be if earned at the same rate. Um, don't ignore inconvenient truths because somebody who's paying attention that day might ask you some questions that they want answers to. So you need to be able to anticipate that. I want, I mean, I want to make a good decision based on facts and I don't, need a bunch of subterfuge to but you want to make a good decision based upon relevant facts yes right so so keep to that example right we practice in michigan child support is based upon four primary factors the overnight parenting time schedule the income of the parties any out-of-pocket child care costs any out-of-pocket health insurance costs right those are the four things that we're typically looking at when we're calculating child support all right when you're filing that child support motion, okay, I don't need to hear how the other party spends their money. All right, I don't need six pages of, you know, uh, mom has a gambling problem, dad has a huge tab at the strip club, parties are out flying private jets all over the place. It's not relevant. No, here's right. my favorite though. Here's my favorite. And I, not only do I see it from in pro per parties, but I see it from attorneys, which is again, like my brain explodes. She's using the child support to help pay her rent. How dare she? Dude, that is what child support is for. So that maybe instead of living in a studio apartment where everybody's sleeping on a sofa, maybe she can get the one bedroom. Right. That's what it's for. Right. Like, I, I can't. Just, but keep the, I mean, there is something to be said sometimes for brevity. And it's not that I don't like reading. I love reading. But I, I want to read things that are relevant and they're going to help me as a trier of fact get to the best possible decision. So again, if you know how much the other party is making and you have the evidence to back that up, great. Let's talk about it and bring that to the forefront of the conversation. But the fact that dad might engage in any number of vices or dad's on the golf course every weekend or dad has a new girlfriend every time he picks up the kids, I don't care. I know the other party might care about that. And I know that maybe that's a bit of a sore spot for them, but it's not relevant for me making the decision. And again, I think as the lawyer, you have a responsibility and an obligation to give the court the relevant facts, you know, that are going to help them make the best decision, right? And not sit there and again, use motion practice as the airing of the grievances. I agree. And, and also not turning up the gas, right? Right. So you don't need to use overly emotional language. You don't need to use fighting words. Every motion is not an opportunity to trash the other party or the opposing counsel. Just it, dragnet it for me. Just the facts, ma'am. Just right. the facts.
And by the so, way, I think this is a great time to sort of maybe address our listeners and say, some of you listening, this probably doesn't apply to you. But you probably know the lawyers that it does apply to. So go ahead and send them this podcast, <laughs> right? Because you're going to boost our subscription numbers, which is great. But it's also going to start making the whole sandbox a lot cleaner to play in. Right. Well, that I mean, that's the whole <laughs> point of the podcast, right? Is to elevate the level of practice, hopefully. Right. We so, don't know it all. We're not, you know, let me, let me I'm not the second coming of Clarence Darrow, but we've learned a few things in our combined 20 years of practice. More than, more than 20. No, I know, I, but I wanted to age you down there. I wanted oh, to age you down that. for this. I thank you. So the other thing you want to keep in mind too, is that your motion is probably not the only one being read by your judge or referee that day. So if what? it's a motion that's on a cattle call motion call, like it is in Oakland County, your judge or referee might be reading 15 or 20 or 30 motions for that particular day. So like a rosé wine in the summer, keep it crisp. Keep it brief. Keep it crisp. Tell me what I need to know to grant the relief, but don't, please don't have paragraph one be the parties were married in 2011 in St. Clair Shores. And then we had a divorce trial and then there was a judgment and 15 paragraphs later, if I don't know why I'm reading your motion, you have not done your job because I'm flipping to your wherefore clause. Ain't no one got time for that. So I, 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 the attorney that I worked for for a number of years used to have this great, um, he used to have this great uh, sort of visual that he would give to clients to sort of explain this very concept. He would take a, a standard piece of paper, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, and he'd say, okay, this paper contains all the things that you think are relevant and important to this case. And then he would fold it in half. And he'd say, this piece of paper is how much the court is going to consider. Then he'd fold it again. This is how much the court's actually gonna read. Then he'd fold it again. This is how much is actually legally admissible to come into court. Then he'd fold it again and he'd say, and this is how much is actually relevant to the outcome of this matter. So by the time it was done, we had like this six folded time piece of paper that I thought really did a good job for clients. I mean, sometimes it was a little bit brash in the way it was presented to them, but I think it's an important thing even for lawyers to realize that, you know, unless you're getting paid by the word and the way some motions come in, I think some of you are, um, we don't need a recitation of the previous 12 years, right? It, it, again, if I have a child support motion, I don't need to know about parenting decisions that were made seven years before the parties got divorced. I assume that there's things that led us to this point, but it's not relevant for what you're coming to the court for. So again, don't use the motions as this opportunity to sort of just trash the other party, you know, on the way to the courthouse and then get there and be suddenly surprised that I can't believe they're so resistant to working together with us. Well, and also maybe don't start your motion with the Old Testament and work your way forward historically. Like, right. And I'll, here's a hot tip that I never listened to when I was in private practice. And now I'm like, damn, that was a good idea. Why didn't I do that? So I had a mentor of mine who was like, put a preamble in your motion that tells the court what the motion's about and why they're reading it. 
so that your lead is up front. And if you're uncomfortable putting it in like an unnumbered paragraph because you are anal retentive, put it in the first paragraph. This motion is a request to change parenting time because the children's extracurricular activities are interfering with the current schedule, right? Or whatever, the, whatever like give me the lead paragraph that would go into a newspaper so that I don't get to page three of your motion and ask myself, why am I reading this? I have no idea what this motion is about and I have no idea what they want. And I will tell you, I think that's a great practice tip. I've seen more um, motions coming in that have incorporated that practice. But again, you know, don't use your preamble. Use the preamble to tell the court what it is that's, that you're looking for and, and very briefly how you're going to get there. But don't use the preamble as a, this motion will demonstrate that dad is a total and complete asshole and no. then proceed to track. But I've seen that too, where you're right. looking oh, I have to. going, this is not, this is not an effective pre opposing party has filed 11 motions in this case in the last year, and they've all been total and utter bullshit. And I'm like, maybe, but that's not what your motion's about. So why are you bringing it up? Also, by the way, if that's happened, do you think we don't already know that? <laughs> Like you, it's not necessary. And I, you know, I'm oh, like, look, again, we can I'm do like an entire podcast on that idea of, you know, assume that the folks that are listening to your case have a little bit of a clue about what's going on. Maybe. Right. But, but also I'm sort of like when I'm reading motions, I'm sort of like a little kid, right? Like I'm reading a book and if you're boring me, I flip to the last page to figure out what's going to happen. <laughs> Like I'm flipping to the wherefore clause because I am on paragraph 17 and we're still pre-judgment and this is a post-judgment motion five years after the fact. Right. Like, Fine, just tell me what happened to Moby Dick. I'm not going through all this. <laughs> I'm not doing this work. And I think, I mean, I think you want to be picky about what you're putting in your motion. It just needs to be the facts that I need to know in order to make the decision you're asking me to make. That's it. Right? Right. And oh, also, like, please don't keep cutting and pasting the same facts for the first two pages from motion to motion in a case. Right. I know you we, see that, Ryan. I we see have that. pretty good memories. I mean, if, if I'm seeing you on a monthly basis, I, I will remember the motion that was filed four months ago when I see the exact same set of facts and allegations in this new motion. Also, I don't need to have a good memory because I have the pleadings. I can look at it if I don't remember, which leads me to something else. Wait, Please wait, stop wait, wait. What? <laughs> Please stop attaching the entire judgment of divorce to every single motion that you make post-judgment. If you feel compelled to attach something from the judgment, attach the relevant pages, but please stop attaching every judgment and motion that has happened in the last five years, along with the court orders. We have them breaking news. We've got them. So please stop attaching it so that when your motion drops on opposing counsel's desk, it makes a nice thunk, but that's about it. So again, and I hate even touching on this, but is that because folks who do that are just super 
OCD about making sure that every base has been covered or is it just another function of the more pages I attach, the more comfortable I feel putting a 2.5, you know, billing entry in? I don't, I, Ryan, if I could think of a legitimate reason why people do that, I would tell you what it is. But and I, I thought about it because I, I don't, you know, it's almost sort of akin to when the attorneys will come in and I know they mean, well, it's not, this is not a, a knock, but it's, you know, the, We've talked before this and we have agreed that we would like the court to take judicial notice of all previous orders that were entered. <gasps> what? Great. <laughs> well, thanks for cutting through that red tape because we are finally getting somewhere now. <laughs> you mean I can look at previous things that the court has ordered when making any type of a decision? <laughs> Shit, this is about to make my life so much easier. Thank you. <laughs> But I feel like it's sort of that, I feel like it's sort of along those lines, like when they attach the judgment, like we want you to know that a judgment was entered in this, and this is what the judgment says. I know a judgment was entered, right? You can either reference it in the body of your motion, or if you want to be really super helpful, just attach the pages that the relevant judgment language is in, right? I don't need the signature page. I assume it was signed because it's in the court file. Wait, it got you don't there. need the four signature pages where the attorney for plaintiff signs on one page and then the plaintiff signs on the next page and then the attorney for the defendant signs on the next page and then the defendant signs on the page after that. You don't need all four of those? Yeah, no. Is it is it because they're already in the file? Right. Ryan, and also they're not relevant to the motion? Correct. Oh. Correct. Oh. Like if this is a parenting time dispute, I don't need the seven pages it took you guys to figure out, you know, who was getting the forks and knives and the wedding album. Agree. You can cut that part out. Save a tree and save us all the effort of going through it. <laughs> um, so and again, it's not that we don't like to read. Like you said, we're, we love it, right? I love when I'm getting into a motion and I'm reading it and it's I can start to follow, you know, the relevant and important facts and it gets me to where I need to go. I just don't need to be bogged down with extraneous things. And I think, again, the whole point of this podcast and this episode in particular is how to refine and make your motions, you know, how to enhance the product that you are delivering to the court, right? And that's going to make you a better attorney. It's going to make you a better advocate. And it's going to put your client in a better position. So I don't want someone listening to this going, oh, it's just a Costner O'Neill bitching and complaining because they don't want to read 73 page, mo page motions. If well, I all don't. Seven, if all I 73 pages, 73 page motions. But you wouldn't care if all 73 pages were absolutely necessary for you to, to derive at the conclusion you need to come to. Well, that's true, but I have a hard time imagining the universe in which that would happen. I agree. I'm just okay. saying, I want to make it really clear. We don't, I, I, you and I don't have an issue going through. I don't mind getting lost in the weeds and getting down to the details as long as they're relevant and necessary. And some no. of the things that get put into these things, the baggage that they're being attached to these motions is so burdensome. It's like, since we're on this train metaphor, right? You're packing for like a two-day train ride and you literally brought with you half of your closet you don't need it right you don't need to put that in well and by the same token though too to be fair um if you're going like on a two-night trip on the train and you have not packed anything that your motion is so devoid of facts or anything in relation to what it is you're asking the court to do like i 
need that information. So it's a balance, but the balance is somewhere between 73 pages and two pages with no information. Uh, by the way, pop, pop culture moment. When you think of a train scene from a movie, what movie do you immediately think of? James Bond. Well, that's a good one. I should think of that since those are like my favorite. Like I love the Bond movies. Which Bond is it where he is fighting on top of a train? I mean, it's probably more than one. There have been a few. The first one that I remember was um, from Russia with Love. There's a really good uh, train sequence. Um, But there have been, they've been in Goldeneye. I'm trying to go through the whole list here, which I'm sure everyone's so excited to hear me talk about James Bond train scene. Well, and they also Um, don't want to hear us argue about who the best James Bond is either, because that's a big difference of opinion. Yeah, no, it's Sean Connery. So not Sean Connery. It's Sean Connery. And there's really no discussion. It's Daniel Craig, and you're the, a liar. The movie for me um, that I always think of is North by Northwest. No, that's with not Carrie. a Bond movie. No, no, no. When I think of a train, when, when I said, when you think of a, oh. a movie with a train scene. No, no, no. Although I think Cary Grant would have been a really good James Bond. Um, <gasps> no, whenever I think Why of, didn't that happen? Oh, because we weren't in charge. Oh my God, that would have been amazing. I'm sure there's an online article that talks about it. But whenever I think of it, whenever, because we've used trains, this locomotion is our clever play on words. Is whenever I think of a movie involving a train, I always think of Cary Grant in that uh, scene. And I can't remember the actress's name, but North by Northwest. Is it? Um, Which is a really good movie. It's not Deborah Kerr. Is it? Kerr? Kerr? No. Is it Princess Grace? No, but I think they were in a movie together. They were in a Hitchcock movie together. Um, Are you Googling? Oh, of course I'm going to. Eve Marie Saint. Oh, Eve Marie Saint. Yeah, she did some good love boats in her later years. Oh, I never saw the love boat. What? It was a really good cast, though. Cary Grant, Eve Marie Saint, James Mason, and Martin Landau were in North by Northwest. Martin Landau. Um, Anyway. Anyway, sorry for the pop culture moment, but I just thought we'd break up our Well, so keeping on the train metaphor and what's on your caboose, which is your attachments, right? Right. The other thing you need to keep in mind is you don't want to attach personal, private information, particularly for kids, medical, psychological birth dates are not supposed to be anywhere in the pleadings now according to the court rules if you think the court must see an attachment that contains that kind of information that's sensitive personal medical psychological type stuff attach it to your judge's copy and your opposing counsel's copy only and put a slip sheet in your pleading that you're filing with the court indicating that that's what you've done and by the way, if you want the referee to see it, you got to get a copy to the referee also, because all we have access to is the court copy. Yeah, no, and, and that's a great point, I think, really sort of universally. If, if your judge is not going to be the first person to see it, make sure you get that judge's copy over to, um, you know, and they're called different things in different states. Uh, but here we're referees which is such a weird name, but we can talk about that another day. Um, make sure there's a copy going to the FOC, because I will get to motion call Wednesday and, you know, 
refer to exhibit D, and then I get down to exhibit D. Provided in judge's copy. I didn't get that. So, right. you know, make sure that you get that. It, it, it continues to astonish me the things that people will put into pleadings and into motions that are being that are part of the of the court file that just never should see the light of day and and it's not because look things that need to have the record preserved there are ways to do that but i mean unity is getting smaller it's not getting bigger it this is no we no longer live in a world where you gotta drive in your car down to the clerk's office and ask them for a copy of a file and then have them dig out this big paper file and hand it to you and you can go through it and then pay 50 cents for a copy of something, right? It is very easy, especially in you know, the sort of Tri-County, Michigan area here, to simply look up a case online, order a document and have it delivered to your email within 30 minutes, right? The same time it would take you to get a pizza, you can get your neighbor's divorce judgment or their complaint or any of their pre and post judgment motions and know everything that you want to know about them um you know in that same time period that's going to take dominoes to get to your house and i think we need to be very cognizant of the things that are going into motions because those things can be seen by friends enemies neighbors employers potential employers and oh by the way someday your kids Agreed. Right? I got a really nosy kid, and I guarantee you, if her mom and I got divorced, by the time she's a teenager, she's going to figure out how to look up the divorce case. And other kids would too, are, are going to do it as well. Well, and I don't, like, people used to worry about, like, when they're the age of majority. I mean, they don't need that anymore. They need a debit card and a computer. Right. That's it. Right. So... You have a PayPal know. for your eBay purchases, you can get mom's divorce judgment. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it, like I said, the world's getting smaller. It's not getting bigger. And, and I think, you know, attach what needs to be attached for the purposes of it being relevant. But we all know the folks who cross that line and attach things for the shock and awe value. Like, you're not Howard Stern. Okay, your in your case is not getting better by shocking your audience, which is going to be a judge or a referee. So don't do it. Right, and I understand that there are sometimes things that the court probably should see that aren't appropriate for attachment, but you really need to be discerning about that. Um, and I, too many times to count, do I see things being attached where the motion says that it's demonstrating something when it just in fact does not like on its own or even with some support. So you want to be careful about that, that what you're, you don't just take the things that your client gives you without reviewing them with a discerning eye, make sure that you're attaching something that supports what you're attaching it for. Right. But also everything that you're attaching isn't evidence. I don't know how many people are like, well, I attached it to my motion. Well, okay, but that doesn't mean it's an exhibit in my hearing. It's not evidence. You have to move to admit it like any other exhibit. Just because you attached it to a motion three months ago doesn't make it part of the record. Right. And, and as another practice tip, just because you attach something to a motion doesn't mean that you serve the other party with that item as a proposed exhibit. Because I hear that from time to time. 
you know, well, I'm gonna move to admit this. And the other attorney says, I've not, I haven't seen this. Well, it was part of my motion. Well, that motion was like eight motions ago by the time we finally got to the hearing. And I, you know, it may not be reasonable that that attorney has been keeping a running file of everything that was attached to the multiple motions that have been filed in this case. So we've talked about, you know, brevity, not needing to repeat the history because we're, we're pretty good about remembering those things and we have those records. Um, what about, you know, how do you feel about using strong language to describe an opposing party? Can you pause? All right, so how do you feel about uh, strong language contained that's contained in motions? What we might call incendiary language. Well, strong language, fine, but personal attacks, um, fighting words, um, it's, it doesn't help. Like, that's not advocacy. That's name-calling. So... And, and I think the other thing that kind of cracks me up is when there's like one fact that clearly someone is very excited about because it gets repeated in like six or seven paragraphs when it's barely relevant. So it's like, you know, dad who had a DUI uh, has had an increase in income. Like I, what? I, and it gets repeated again. And mom who didn't have a DUI like dad has had an increase in healthcare premiums. Like it's, and it gets repeated over and over and over again and it's not relevant and it's not helping. And it's not convincing me that the other person is the bad guy. It's convincing me you don't know how to draft a motion, but it's not convincing me that the other person is terrible. So pop quiz. Oh no. I had no notice of a quiz. I know. I'm sorry. It's a one question quiz. Okay. What is the preferred terminology for the following circumstance? <laughs> Choice A, father has been diagnosed as an alcoholic. Or choice B, father is a drunk. Ah. Uh. Because I think you can make your point and keep it, I guess, medical, like professional by identifying, you know, look, we, we have cases where one parent, maybe sometimes both parents, you know, have had some issues with, with alcohol and substance abuse. And I think you can identify that in a way that doesn't embarrass them but it calls to the court's attention that this is something that may have re-arisen as an issue. But there's also ways, and I've, and, and I've seen this. This isn't just pro pers. I have seen lawyers identify and oh, say, yeah. so-and-so is a drunk. Yep. No, I mean. And I'm going, you know, is that, do we really need to, to caption it that way? Like, I, it just doesn't feel like that's the best way for you to make that argument. I, if you say to me, you know, mother has had a long history with alcohol abuse and has had a relapse in her sobriety. Message received. Understood. I know exactly what's happening. But you did it in a way that didn't embarrass or demean the other person. Right. But coming in hot with, you know, 
This is our motion to modify child support. Mom is a drunk. <laughs> there has been a change in circumstance because mom is a drunk, right? right. It's, it's what you talked about. We've got a fact pattern that we are really excited about because that's what's going to win the day. And I'm going to beat you over the head with it to make sure you remember exactly what that fun fact is. Right. I think anytime that you rub your hands together and then twist your mustache because you are excited about <laughs> putting some sort of scandalous fact in, like maybe rethink how you're approaching that. Right. Yeah. Like if you're doing an evil cackle as you're typing, maybe rethink how you're approaching it. You can get the point across without having to get down in the mud. That's right. all. Right. Yeah. Your, your language doesn't need to come in at an 11. Um, you know, your, your allegations, you know, if you watched Boston legal and that's your mindset as you're drafting legal pleadings, maybe reshift it. Right. To maybe more of an LA law. Loved LA law. I mean, I love Boston legal, but I love LA law. And I was really young for LA law. Yeah, you were. You were probably like- I also watched kid. Cheers as a kid. And I'm really wondering if my parents should have had someone talk to them about <laughs> appropriate I, childhood programming. I, my, I listened to the Hair album so much that by 12, I had all the lyrics memorized. Someone should have called CPS. I'm just saying. Oh, that's good. Um, so anyway, to, to wrap it up, the final thing I think you need to be worrying about is you got to serve your motion on the other side in the number of days that are required under the court rules. Um, you got to do a notice of hearing. And depending on what county you're in, you got to do a precipice so it hits the judge's docket. So, right. I, I mean, even... Again, another thing that makes my brain explode is attorneys who have not bothered to document that they've served the other side. I can't tell you how many times at motion call I had an attorney trot back into the jury room ready for us to say, oh, the other side didn't show up, motion granted, only to look at the file and there's no proof of service in the file. And they hmm. say, well, I served it on them. Okay. Well, there's no proof of service. Hold on. So, I just I just called my secretary and she told me that she did actually mail it. Right. Or <laughs> another personal favorite, well, I served it by certified mail and they attached the receipt from when they sent it out, but not the return receipt requested. Right. So I, yeah, I know you sent it. I don't know if they got it, which doesn't matter for motions. It matters for service of process, right. but uh, you got to serve it. You got to serve it. And sort of adjacent to that, if you're not going forward with your motion, which is perfectly fine, you're going to spend some more time talking, uh, somebody's just retained an attorney, just pick up the phone and leave a message. And, and you know, I always say start with, the, with judges' chambers and let them know. But by the way, the way that I know most counties are functioning now, you know prior to your motion call day if you're going to be, and I guess this would be sort of strictly with for family cases, you know, if you're meeting with a friend of the court or, you know, depending on what state you're in, uh, you know, they're sort of equivalent of a, of a, of a, uh, right. you know, family law magistrate, whoever you're going to be in front of, 
let them know too. Because right? sometimes the wires do get crossed. I don't always hear everything about every phone call that's been made to Chambers, you know, on the update or the status of a pending motion. Just quick call to a case assistant, quick call to, you know, the front of the court office, quick call to Chambers and just say, hey, we're not going this week. Right. Well, and also that brings something else up, which is if you, I, we have a motion that every two or three weeks since July of 2020, I mean, we are now sitting here in mid-March of 2021, at least every two or three weeks, there's another precipice filed for the same motion from July. I'm guessing that some of the facts have changed and need to be updated, but there's nothing in the file. Right. And they never show up. They just you mean the emergency motion that was filed in August of 2020 that's now been reprecipied to March of 2021? Yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> the most urgent of emergencies that has now been pushed off for seven months. Right. And I, putting yeah, aside the absolutely. humor in the title, like you said, things have changed. Like, there's no way what was going on in August is exactly the same as what's happening when you're going to come before the court. Yep, I have one right, a different one right now that keeps getting reprecipied. And we, friend of the court met with them the first time it was precipied. And some of the facts that were in the motion were demonstrably false, demonstrably false. And it's like, well, let's regroup and, you know, let's have a couple things happen. And then, you know, maybe we need to bring the motion back up. But they never filed an amended. They never filed a different motion. They just keep re-noticing the same motion that they know has facts in it that are not true. I sanction much? Right. I don't do that. Right. You look stupid. Yeah, and, and it's not helping your client. No. At all. No, correct. Like if there's stuff in there that you know is wrong, get that corrected. Because if you just keep, keep hammering away at it. That's a problem. So closing thoughts, in addition to everything we've talked about, you know, the one thing I always remind folks of is remember, you know, the court rules are pretty specific in terms of how motions need to be, you know, drafted and filed and served. And that includes, you know, uh, page limits, right? If your motion's 42 pages, that's 22 pages more in Michigan than I should be reading. So Get it trimmed down. Speaking of trimming things down, let's wrap it up. <laughs>